Amen. Hey, this morning we are in Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Galatians 5, 7 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you if you're not familiar with how to use it. There's a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. And then the large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're in Galatians 5, 7 to 12. When I was in college, one of my roommates, after his first year of college, was in a, uh, it was in a terrible bus accident. And the result of that bus accident was just enduring pain in his back. And so he'd go to sleep at night with pain. He'd wake up in the morning with pain. And it just it fundamentally changed his life. It changed how he had to interact because his life was now this experience of pain. And in order to address the pain, it really began to change the way that he saw a number of things. And he began to live his life in such a way as to seek out the relieving of this pain. Now, as he first started doing this, he went to every doctor he could find, and, and they'd look at him, and they'd address his back, and like, we can do this procedure, and we can do that procedure, and we can do this procedure over here, and he, he did a number of these. And what he found in, in, in a number of these procedures was temporary relief from the effects of the pain, but inevitably it would come back or it manifest in some slightly different way. This pain was an enduring legacy from the accident that he'd been in. So he began to look at it and say, well, medicine's not going to provide it. And so he began to to find further and further and further digging into the world of kind of of faith healing. You know, what would it look like for me to go to this faith healer? What would it be like for me to go to this thing? And and I know they're nuts and I know they're crazy, but maybe just maybe the oil they use will be magical. And so he began to find himself believing in things that were way beyond the pale, the boundaries of Scripture. He began to find himself moving and investing and believing in things because what he wanted wasn't to grow closer to the Lord. Ultimately, what he wanted, what he said he wanted, was a removal of that pain. And he was willing to believe anything, to do anything, to sacrifice anything, to see that pain removed. What we see in the Galatians is that they're looking at and they're taking in the instruction from the Judaizers who are coming into the community. And what they are telling the Galatians is if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to have it this way. And they want to have the relationship with God. They want to have the community of the Judaizers. And so they are sacrificing, they are moving, and they are disbelieving the truth of the gospel. And Paul, with the sensitivity of a pastor and recognizing the urgency of the situation, moves forward with all haste to address it. Now this likely, and some of the things that he says within this passage, within 5, 7 through 12, aren't things that, that we could hear ourselves. That's a little harsh. We begin to say, maybe he was just too worked up. Maybe it's really not that big of a deal. But I hope what we see, I hope what we see in the midst of this is Paul's pastoral heart ring through. And what he's doing is calling them back to the basis of who they are in Jesus, right? 
and who they are in Jesus and who Jesus has found them to be will hold them fast even if they feel the ostracism and rejection of this community that they think they need to be a part of. Let's read 5, 7 through 12 together. Paul tells them, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And what a, what a kind way to end, right? Look at what he says. And, and you'll remember that in 5, 1 through 6 that Paul has gone through and, and what they're wrestling with here is whether or not to take circumcision, whether or not to buy into essentially to a works-based righteousness And what Paul's telling them is, if you do this, you have to keep the whole law, and if you try and do this, you're going to fail. And in this effort and in this movement, what you're going to find is that you are severed, removed from the benefits of Jesus, because essentially what you're saying is, I don't need Jesus in his sacrifice, I've got this on my own. So that's a harsh word for them to hear. So it's fascinating that what he does is he comes immediately back and he asks them to recall their former manner of faithfulness in Jesus. And he uses this metaphor, this picture of what it is to run. And so within this race that Paul describes, essentially we see a post driven down some distance away so the runner would head in this direction. When they would begin to make it to the post, they'd run down, they'd run around the post. When you were doing this in your faith, you were running well. Now, he's not writing in such a way to flatter them and to give them a false view of the piety present in their lives. I think he is honest in his assessment for how they formerly lived their lives. Now, notice in this, he doesn't say, you ran good on occasion. There were days and there were occasions where, you know, you did a pretty good job. And when people would look at you, they were mildly inspired. And they said, look at that. He's not coming in last. And they give you a participation award. No, when he describes, when he reflects on their former manner of existence and living faithfully unto Jesus, he says, in so much as you were doing that, you did really well. He's asking them to recall what it was like to live in faithfulness to Jesus. What was it like? Did you find yourself missing something? Did you find yourself neglecting something? Did Did you have a sense that you were far away from the Lord? You were running well. And in the midst of you running well, Paul asked them to consider this question. In essence, he's asking them to reflect back upon the events of this race, back upon what it was like for them to head with all purpose and direction towards this point. He said, when you were heading there and you were running well, do you recall in the middle of these things who it was that cut in front of you, that forced you to trip, to fall, to veer off course? Who was this person? Who was this group? Now, Paul knows who the group is. And Paul knows what their party line is. But what is he asking them to do? He's asking them to reevaluate the direction of the Judaizers in line with its negative effect on their walk with Jesus. He says, you ran well. 
You were headed towards that point. You were veering back. You were collapsing back on yourself and heading back in the other direction. But right before you made it to that point, someone came in from off the pitch and they forced you to veer off. They hindered your race. They impeded your progress. I think if we're going to take an honest assessment of our lives on the occasions when we begin to see ourselves not running well and faithfully unto Jesus, there is some situation, there is some person, there is something in us that we want that, co- that causes us to veer off course. And it's so incredibly important that we recognize who this is, that we recognize what this was, that we recognize the situation and the circumstances surrounding it, because if we don't, if we don't recognize who it is, if we don't name this person, if we don't name this situation, if we don't come to understand the intricacies of how this thing came to be, this is what we're going to find ourselves doing constantly, repeatedly, veering further and further and further and further and further off course to where we're no longer running the race God has set before us. We are running our own path. We are setting our own goals. We are heading according to our own internal wants, directions, and care. We've got to know who hindered us. We've got to know what got in our way. So Paul asked them to name who it is. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from living faithfully to the gospel? I think there exists within some of our minds, and certainly within the realm of possibilities within the Galatians' mind, this idea of if I could just weave both of these things together... I could keep everyone in peace. And so if I could just weave together a little bit of works righteousness, a little bit of God save me even in my deadness together, if I could weave these things together, then I could keep both groups harmonious. I could get everything I want, and I don't have to surrender anything. But what Paul says in the middle of this is, listen, in the midst of you running well, this group came along, they hindered you, and in so doing, they pushed you off course, and they caused you to be disobedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are people in our lives, there are events in our lives, there are circumstances in the middle of us running well that will cause us to do the very same thing. We must take care to discover what these things are. Paul, moving in his description of of those who have hindered them, those who have caused them to veer off course, says this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, Jesus, in John 8 and 44, was speaking in some sense about who this is and what this looks like to be led off course. And speaking of Satan, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Listen to what he says. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a, fa- he is a liar and the father of lies. So in essence, we can see the argument being made and the point being argued that when these people are coming in and they are persuading you, then they are finding themselves in league with Satan. And Satan's goal, his objective, if he can't completely and utterly ruin and destroy your life, is certainly to lead you to run in the wrong direction. To cause you to veer off course and cause you to look at the the point that you're now headed to and to see that as the ultimate place where God desires you to be. All the while looking at you and saying, 
I've been successful. I have caused them to veer. Of course, I've caused them to miss the point at which God was causing them, calling them to run. Now notice what Paul says. He says, this persuasion. I think there exists within some of us the naive assumption that when wrong comes our way, that we'll immediately recognize it. Then when error comes our way, we'll immediately recognize it, we'll reject it out of hat, and we'll find ourselves continuing to walk along the path of righteousness. And so we say, listen, I'm going to continue to run well, and when I see something that's an obstacle, when I see something that's an impediment, I will immediately recognize it, and I don't have to worry about anything. Do you hear the pride in that? Do you hear the self-sufficiency in that? What we need to come to recognize is that we are a people infinitely prone to any sin out there. We all are infinitely capable and given to submitting ourselves to the lies of the enemy. We are frail, weak, vulnerable people. And there's a humility in that that creates a needfulness in us that says to God from us, I need your help to run well. I can't run well on my own. I can't run well as, as an individual. I need my brothers and sisters to run this race with me so that when they begin to see that I'm veering off course, they come and they grab me by the, the scruff of my neck and they pull me back in this direction and they say, run with us. There's never this idea that we're out there running alone. There's never this idea that this is an individual activity. There's always the picture that this is a corporate communal endeavor. And so with grace and mercy, we see our brothers and sisters veering off course and we pull them back and we recognize that when we do that, we join in league with the Lord. And look at what he says. God is the one who has called us. Back in Galatians 1 and verse 6, Paul speaking to them says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. And how did God call them? And how does God call us? He calls us in the grace of Christ. You have been called unto the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus met you in the deadness of your flesh. It met you in the, it met you in the selfishness of your desires. It met you in the darkness of life and it called you to enjoy Jesus. God is the one who calls us. He says, listen, this actually is persuasive. They're presenting persuasive arguments. Recognize that just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's from God. Just because it benefits, benefits you doesn't mean it's a blessing from God. Just because it makes your life better doesn't mean that it's God giving you a blessing. Sometimes God allows difficulties to enter into our life for the purpose of making us more like him. That we reject sin. That we reject ease that we welcome discomfort that we welcome difficulty because those are sometimes the good gifts that our God gives us recognizing those are the things we need from him and that's a hard thing for us to understand but the one who has called us will sustain us look at what he writes next quoting uh, Jesus and and we see Jesus used this a number of different times in different ways in the gospels Paul uses the same phrase a variety of different times in his writings he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, Jesus takes this idea and he attributes it and he applies it to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 6, 
Jesus tells the disciples, he says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the disciples are completely flummoxed. They think Jesus is talking about bread. They look around and they're like, Jesus, we don't have anything to eat. Like, there's no Subway here. There's no Quiznos here. No one can say Schlotzky's well. There's nothing for us to eat. Jesus corrects them. He says, listen, I'm not talking about bread. Verse 12 says, then they figured it out. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul's point in this is that that even a little bit of heresy, even a little bit of, of, of doctrinal slippage can be devastating to the truth of the gospel. Now we say things like this and, and, and we're heard to, to communicate these things and some of the reactions you might get is you're overly dogmatic. You are too wooden and there is no grace in you. Because you're telling other people that they are wrong. And you're appealing to something that isn't kind, that isn't loving, that isn't gracious and inviting of others. And so we have this sense that that maybe that is what we're being. And so there's this temptation to be more accommodating. There's this temptation to be more open, to be more inviting, to allow more things to hold I think some of what has prepared us in our hearts to move away from doctrinal faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness to God, and faithfulness to word, were the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the full nature and the impact of what I think is rightly understood as kind of these ideas of faux heresies. Conservative Christians chase the idea of faux heresies for so long that it has dulled our effectiveness of recognizing what true heresy and what true doctrinal uh, illegitimacy is. So if you think about just kind of conservative circles and every idea that 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 kind of brings to your mind, think about that for a long time the church said, listen, if you play cards, you are a sinner destined to hell. If If you roll dice, you are a sinner destined for hell. If you danced, and listen, if we're going to be honest, we know that most of us just shouldn't do that. Not because it's sinful, but for pure lack of ability. (laughs) Save it for TikTok. Please. But we we had this belief that, that these things are absolutely sinful, that those who engage in them don't love the Lord, and these faux heresies dull the sensitivity to the things that really are affront to the Lord. And we begin to move in this kind of legalistic bent and apply it to a whole host of things that weren't really sinful. So for a while there in church, if you saw somebody raising their hand and worshiping the Lord, you would bump the person beside you and say, they are a charismatic, they're going to ruin everything. That's just how you sound when you say those things. And there's this holdover effect of that. We would say we no longer believe that. But there's absolutely this belief in our hearts that in the middle of worship, when we feel led to do something different, one of the thoughts that occurs in our minds is how will people see me? The impact of the holdover of applying faux heresy has a devastating effect on the free expression of worship in the church. Think about the idea of of women speaking in church. One of the faux heresies was that if a woman speaks in church, she must not love her husband. She must not love Jesus. 
She's completely unfaithful to the teachings in the New Testament, and she probably wants to be a pastor someday. We would stone her if we could, but that's illegal in the state of Texas. And this faux heresy took root in our hearts, and what it has held over and what it has created in the church is this this enduring legacy of devaluing the input of women. And saying, this is great, but it should probably only be shared in women's Bible studies. And if one of them's husbands happens to be a little bit more sensitive, then maybe he could hear it and that he could gather together with the men and he could pass it along. Somehow, if a woman speaks in public, the whole walls of the church will fall down. And one of the enduring legacies of that is that If you were to try and have a conversation with somebody about the possibility of a woman being able to serve as a deacon, suddenly you're you're labeled as a heretic. Aside from the fact that in Romans 16.1, Paul clearly lists Phoebe as a deaconess. The holdover effect and the lasting impact of faux heresies lead us to walk in the restraints to legalism and not a fair application and explanation and investigation of God's word and what it says. When we begin to think about the understanding of these faux heresies, we saw ourselves and we saw culturally people moving to the, to the left. And so what we did was we made ourselves hard and wooden and everything that smacked of just, mm, I'm not really comfortable with that, we, we completely rejected out of hats. And then when the culture began to look at us and when we began to take a hard look at ourselves and say, wow, you guys are really wooden, like if you swallow coal, diamonds pop out. I mean, like you guys are really, really rough. We begin to say, oh, we just think grace is the most wonderful thing in the world. And we move so hard and fast to the grace direction that when we saw people in out-and-out sin, we said, let's, let's just not be upset about our sin. Let's just not be bothered by our sin. Because God absolutely loves you, and he's not at all concerned with your sin. We, we as a people move from saying that if you are divorced, then you are ceremonially unclean and unwelcome to the church to moving to the other side and saying, you don't like your husband, you want to get divorced, we fully endorse that and support that. When can we schedule your next wedding? There's this wonderful tension that exists. And we have to be a people who maintain this tension. Did God lavish his grace on you and save you in the midst of your deadness and and your rebellion and your complete and utter rejection of him he absolutely did you accomplished you did nothing to accomplish your salvation god did it all but does he require absolute obedience from you as an expression of thanks and out of love for him he absolutely And so we are a people held fast in the middle of this, holding on and upheld by God's grace and mercy. Jesus holding us fast, seeking to live faithfully. Man, I want to be faithful to the Lord. And I recognize, and I hope you do as well, that my desire to be faithful, that your desire to be faithful, will not find us being perfect. But it will find us 
when we fail to live perfectly faithful lives to the Lord, once again, receiving the embrace of his grace. It doesn't erase the consequences of our sin. It doesn't erase the need to live faithfully to the Lord. But what it does is create a warm and inviting location for God to receive us in the midst of our failures and in those times. He has saved us. He saves us still. Amen? So he's warned them. He said this idea that you can work for your salvation, this idea that if you take circumcision that you're in and you're safe, you have to completely reject these. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. This will ruin the church. So the Galatians are struggling with this idea like, have I gone too far? Is, is, is there hope for me in returning? It, perhaps God looks at me and he says, no, 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 no. I'm done with you. And we've experienced the sting of that in our relationships. And some of us have been those people who have rejected and who have said, look, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you. This is who you are and you'll never be any different. But what does Paul say of this? He doesn't say that. He doesn't communicate to the Galatians that they've gone too far. He doesn't communicate that there's no way back. What he says of them is, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. He looks at the person, he looks at the Judaizers, he looks at those that are troubling them, that are leading them astray, and he says they are destined for the judgment of God. If they don't change their course, if they don't change their mind, if they don't change their belief set, they will receive for all eternity the judgment of God forever separated from him in the lake of fire. But for you, Galatians, I have this confidence. Now it's fantastic and it's freeing that Paul doesn't find his confidence. He's not looking back at the, the way they ran at this point and saying, don't you remember what it was like to run well? I have this confidence that you can run like that again. Paul finds his confidence in Christ. In Romans, in five, Romans 5 and verse 10, Paul asks this question. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we were in this pitiable state. We were dead rebels. And we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The promise for us, the hope for us, is not in our ability to come back to doing good things again. The hope for us, the promise for us, is that Jesus stays the same. We were saved by his death. We are saved now by his life. So Paul looks at the Galatians, and essentially he's making this argument that the power of Jesus at work in you by the operation of his Holy Spirit is enough to pull you out of the comfort of sin, to pull you out of the stupor of disbelief, to draw you away from errant belief sets. I have absolute confidence in Jesus. And this is where we find ourselves, or this is where we should find ourselves going when we see our brothers and sisters running away and rebelling in sin. Our, 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 our hope is that God would change their hearts. 
that he would utilize the Holy Spirit to create such conviction in them that he brings them back on the course again. And we can find ourselves in the middle of that prayer, not looking at them and seeing them do well and seeing them do poorly and allowing that to shake us to our core. But Paul invites us to place our confidence in the very place he places here. We place our confidence in the Lord. If you're a parent and you see your kids moving away, and you see your kids begin to live unfaithfully before the Lord, and that creates a terrific amount of heartache. If you're a husband and you see your wife moving unfaithfully, if you're a wife and you see your husband, if you see, uh, and vice versa, and vice versa, I don't, I don't know which way I said it there. It's destabilizing. It's fear-inducing when we see the up and downs of their emotions. But Christian, the place where our God invites us to put our confidence isn't in their change of heart. The place where the people around us are placing their confidence for our change of heart should not be in us. He invites us, he instructs us to place our confidence in the Lord. And to come away with this, this, this idea that the one who is troubling them, that those who are in league with Satan and leading men and women away from him, if they don't relent and place their faith and trust in Jesus, what they will receive is an ultimate judgment. Now look at 11 and 12. Paul gives us, in a really curious way, a window into his pastoral perspective and his zeal for the Galatians. It was being said of Paul by the Judaizers, listen, Paul's not really opposed to circumcision. He's just opposed to it here. Paul's this guy who goes out and he's got one instruction here in this city. He's got another instruction here in this city. And so Paul comes into it and you can imagine him kind of sitting at this desk thinking, I can't believe they believe this about me. I I've been so faithful to them. I've instructed them carefully. I can't believe that they think that I've got this set of rules here and this set of rules there. And I'm just kind of flipping a coin. I'm like, oh, that's Caesar's face again. Oh, that's Caesar's face again. Oh, look at that. An olive branch. No circumcision. That's not how he's engaging. That's not what he's doing. And so he asked them to consider. He said, listen, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In 1 Corinthians 7 and 18, Paul said, listen, if you're circumcised, stay that way. If you're uncircumcised, stay that way. Don't change how you are in an effort to please the Lord. He's already, he's answered this elsewhere within his writings. He says, why am I still being persecuted? So just know that they're lying to you. He says, but just say for, 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 for sake of arguments that I am engaging in this. Brothers, this is the consequence of this. It removes the offense of the cross. And to remove the offense of the cross is to empty Jesus' sacrifice of any benefit. Galatians 3 and 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says, if what they're saying about me is true, the cross is of no benefit. Everything I've written to you is empty, and you know that's not true. 
believe. Recognize the lies that they are heaping upon you. Recognize the heart of these lies. And then Paul utters this word that is really shocking. This argument back and forth is on the idea of circumcision. And Paul approaches it and he says, I wish that those who unsettle you, those who are causing problems in your community, those who are seeking to lead you to a workspace righteousness, I wish they wouldn't stop with the idea of circumcision. I wish they would remove the entire thing altogether. This is the zeal he has. This is the anger he has. Paul in righteous anger if the unsettling effect of the Judaizers comes back if the opposition party and he says you're not going far enough. I wish that you would grossly mutilate yourself. And in this the Galatians don't view this picture and say well that's a little bit harsh. You see, because in his anger and in his indignation, he shows his heart for the Galatians. And he shows his anger and he shows the justice of God for those who seek to be a hindrance to the faith of others. What God calls us to isn't a life of responding to all the various things that come our way with a question of, How is this going to impact me? How is this going to benefit me? But what God calls us to is a faithfulness to him, a faithfulness to his word, and a complete and utter rejection of all those things that would seek to be a hindrance to us. And we can only know what those things are through the lens of Scripture through the counsel of wise brothers and sisters around us in a submission to the leading of his spirit. Amen? Let's bow our hearts before the Lord in prayer. God, we pray that your word would dwell richly in our hearts. God, that we would not be those who are unwittingly being a hindrance to our brothers and sisters, calling them to something other than faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would take a careful assessment and consideration for who in our life is serving as a hindrance. For what in our life is serving as a hindrance? Not leading us to grow in intimacy and closeness with Jesus. God, would your spirit give us insight into these things? Stir in our hearts a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. God, you are good and you do good. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And God, I pray that that's what we would delight in and that's what we would submit ourselves to in all things. Father, we pray for any in this place or in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to your son, Jesus. 
or maybe they've heard these things and they're seeking to make themselves holy and appropriate. They're seeking to eradicate sin or wrongdoing from their lives so that they'll be good enough to be accepted by you. God, that you would set them free by your grace. That you would remove from them the stain of sin by the power of your spirit through the sacrifice of your son. God, that you would remove from them the lie from the enemy that they can be good enough to be saved. But we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses. God, and even in our rebellion and in our wickedness, you saved us. And we pray the same for them. And we pray the same for them. Father, would you bless us as we continue to worship you through the singing of songs and lifting our voices to you to glorify you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.